0: Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in, Ed- in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I'm great. Thank you very much. Uh, how are you? I'm doing good. Listeners, I want to apologize for not having an episode the past few weeks. We both have been busy with various things, and I was, was under the weather for a bit, and all kinds of things have come up. But uh, we're glad to be back with you this week.
1: Absolutely. David, before we start, can I pay tribute to one of our listeners?
0: Oh, please do. Yes. One of our oh, Scottish oh, 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 listeners. All, all five of them need to be praised to a <laughs> concern. <Evans, sorry. laughs>
1: Uh, one of our Scottish listeners, Paul, uh, I was recently in conversation with him, and Paul tried to do as many, he was on a research trip to the U.S. in New York, uh, and he tried to do as many things, you remember the episode when we did things yes, you want to yes, do if you're just, visiting America? Yes. Well, he tried to do as many of them as possible, so I think we need to credit Paul for going to a diner and a used bookstore and all those kinds of things we said.
0: Yes, wow, okay, good. Did, did he have any particular responses to, to to our suggestions, whether they were good ones or?
1: He's very nice. So he said he enjoyed it.
0: He's like you idiots! <laughs> I wasted my time and money. You know, yes.
1: from... I can't believe. Yes, I had seventy two hours in New York, and I wasted it on YouTube clowns. But By no. Man. So thank you, Paul. Right. So this week we're going to talk.
0: We're talking about this new book, Frank. That's added, is going to be released. What is it next week? A revolutionary friendship. Washington Jefferson and the American Republic, written by you. And Frank is now holding up a loving copy of, of the book, which is not, I think it's it's being released officially next week, but there are copies that have made it out into the world. Uh so
1: there are there are uh the official launch is next Saturday, February 17th, here at Monticello. Excellent. That being President's Day weekend and the book being about two presidents. That's the That's the deal. Uh, The official release date in the U.S. is February 20th, which is actually Washington's birthday. Uh, So it's the following Tuesday. But yes, I've received some advanced copies. And um, yeah, very excited. We've got an event. uh, The the events folks here at Monticello, who've been lovely to work with on this launch, um, asked me how many tickets I needed, thinking I would say three or four. But most of my Almost all of my living relatives are coming. So I had to say <laughs> 24. <laughs> wow. Okay. So uh, hopefully it will be a friendly audience. I'm really thrilled that my friends and colleagues, uh, Annette Gordon-Reed and Peter Onuf, who've been real kind of helps to me throughout my career, but particularly with this project, are coming down for the launch and we will be in conversation together about it. Uh, and that will be live streamed.
0: Oh, wow. Okay, great. So so listeners, if, if you like what you hear today, when we're talking about the book. Uh, you can listen to it in a different format, and uh, in 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 a week in a bit. Um, that's right. And are we going to have a Scottish release party or not?
1: Uh, I hope so. In fact, okay, that's something well, I want to talk to you about, David. Okay. Because uh, I yeah, I I, I hope well, I hope so. When I'm I could, because as many listeners will probably know, I'm returning to Scotland. On a full time basis on June thirtieth of, of this year at the end of my year here, uh, so I will be back. So hopefully we can do something Fourth of this July summer.
0: book release party, maybe or something along yeah. those lines. Right. So so we we've mentioned this book as you've been writing it over the past few years and in, in passing on the show, but but where did the idea for the book come from? Why did you want to to write a book about the friendship between these two guys?
1: Well, David. Uh, this is interesting. One of the things we pay a lot of, uh, lip service to, uh, we have, uh, in UK higher education, we have this, uh, process we're subjected to the research, the research excellence framework where they assess our research, right. Um, every decade or so. And one of the things that universities always pay lip service to is teaching led research, right? Yes. Uh, I'm not sure what that actually is although I can I can, <laughs> I can I can say the buzzwords however this book had its genesis I was thinking about this the other day in a student question so I think this is teaching led research I teach a course on the American Revolution and a student you know students uh, for the for uh, the past few years of course are well versed in all things Hamilton, and I'm talking about the show, necessarily, not necessarily not. the Hamilton papers. Um, but but uh, so so students have a greater familiarity with the American founding, even our UK students, um, than they did a decade ago. When they, in terms of what they're bringing into the class, uh, and and one of the students asked me about the relationship between Washington and Jefferson, possibly inspired by Hamilton. I'd have to kind of dig back through my memories to see, if, to try it. But a student asked me about their relationship and I kind of fumbled through an answer and then thought, oh, that's really interesting. And then I did a search and I was surprised and I should have known this. There is no book on it or there was no book on it. Uh, there's one book that talks about their kind of falling out late in life, which I guess we'll get to. Uh, but there, there, were for all the, you know, we've got Jefferson and Adams, of course, and Jefferson and Hamilton. Uh, There was no book on Jefferson and Washington. And arguably, I would say, well, I've got to be, I've got to do some self-promotion here. They're the two most important of the Virginia leaders of the revolution in the revolutionary era. Okay, Um, I mean, Madison has a good claim, but I think, I think that's true. And I realized I knew relatively little in in trying to answer this student question. I knew relatively little about it beyond what you'd kind of glean from textbooks, including Mm. the textbook I wrote. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and and so I started to pursue this. And so that's how I picked up this thread. And it proved to be more interesting than I thought it would be. So when did they meet? They met. Well, this is an interesting question, David. So this is, I'm sharing, uh, I, I, I'm sharing the uh, findings of the book. Um, traditionally in their biographies, they are said to have met for the first time when they were both attending a session of the House of Burgesses in the spring of 1769. And that's actually quite an important moment because it's when the governor um, is going to prorogue the the, the house and, and send them away, and then it, the, the kind of things escalate in Virginia. However, I can place them at the theater, at the old theater in Williamsburg, in 1768, because it turns out using Washington's diaries. And Jefferson's account books, his memorandum books, we know they were both at the theater on the same night or the same afternoon in in Williamsburg in 1768. So I think it's reasonable. It's the first time we know they were in the same place at the same time. They might have met earlier than that. Uh, they definitely met in 1769, but I think they met at the theater in 1768. I need to thank my friend Maurizio Valzania, who kind of turned, uh, alerted me to this possibility. And I had a look in the records, and, and that that's when I think they met for the first time. Okay, so a couple questions about that. Well, what were they seeing at the theater? We don't know. No idea. And I, I, I tried to find that out, oh, okay. and I don't know. I mean, we know the theater company, and they did a kind of variety of everything from sort of... Um, Farces to dramas to tra- you know, tragedy, we don't know. We don't okay, know. so we don't know. They but are. they both were theater lovers. They okay, both that, love that the new Okay, yeah.
0: and I guess they're both pretty tall, so they would have stood out in the crowd. They would have been able to see each other. Uh,
1: you
0: know,
1: <laughs> yes, Jefferson's taller than Washington, which surprises people. Really? Okay, but they're, yeah, both, they're, but both,
0: they're th- both they're both
1: taller they're than both tall. They're both tall. They're both tall. Yeah, they're both taller <laughs> than we are. That's for sure. And they would have stood out. And, and they're going to stand out now. Of course, you know the theater wasn't that big. Um, hmm. and these are, I mean, Washington was a famous guy in 1768. Jefferson wasn't, hmm. you know, Jefferson's only 25. He's, he's not very well known yet, but Jefferson would have known who Washington was without a doubt and probably thought, Ooh, there's Washington at the, you know, hmm. and maybe they would have been introduced. They're in the same social class, of course. So I, I, I think it's highly likely they met.
0: Okay. So if they met in 68 or 69, when did they actually become friends when would you say they they actually had a relationship as friends?
1: Right. So that, that's also a good question. So their relationship lasts for 30 years, either from 1768 until 1799 or 1769 to 1799, depending on when they met. And Washington dies in December of 1799. For the first few years, let's say five to eight years, they know each other. They travel in the same circles. They uh, are kind of in the same network, to use kind of the language mm. of social media. But I don't necessarily think they're friends. They were probably they were Facebook friends at this point, probably rather than actual <laughs> friends, right? You know, so okay. they they, yeah, they like each other's posts. Who <laughs> sent like the, that who that se- <laughs> wait wait did, did, if that's the case who who sent the friend request? <laughs> Jefferson would have sent the friend request to Washington after the theater, like, oh, I just make George Washington. Washington Washington probably only logged in once every year or something like that. But but, but, uh, so they are friendly, but not necessarily friends. Um, They're in the House of Burgesses together. They're involved. They're on the same side as and they are in agreement as the as British American relations deteriorate in the first half Mm. of the 1770s. Um, and so they're getting to know each other, but there's no evidence to suggest that they're necessarily particularly close at that point. They really start to collaborate when um, the war starts in 1775. Um, Washington, of course, becomes comm- is appointed commander of the Continental Army. He's away for eight years. Hmm. He only returns to Mount Vernon once in that period. Uh, Jefferson's most active in Congress and then back in Virginia. So they're not really interacting all that much they're occasionally writing to each other about things it's when Jefferson is elected governor of Virginia during the war in 1779 that they really start to become close and one of the things I did in writing this book David I mean as a historian I hope you'll appreciate this I went back and I read their correspondence in order, you know, so let let me, let me, let's, let's start with the basics here. And, and I, so, and, and they exchanged hundreds of letters over the course of their, of their, the time they knew each other and they, the letters become more frequent when Jefferson is governor. Most of them are workaday stuff. Most of them Mm -hmm. is, you know, you need to do this. You do, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, the British are invading Virginia. Can you send some troops? That kind of thing. Um, Uh, It's about raising troops, feeding troops, paying troops, that kind of stuff. Um, But they are becoming friendlier. The tone of the letters changes. As as listeners may know, Jefferson, the end of Jefferson's governorship is is rather ignominious for him. His term ends just as the British are, are kind of running rampant around Virginia. They send the legislature and Jefferson fleeing from Richmond to Charlottesville, where I am now, and then from Charlottesville on to Stanton uh jefferson's term ended while the legislature while the government was in flight and so he kind of said well i'm going on vacation to poplar forest his other estate uh down down near lynchburg and so there was a there was he was accused by his political enemies later of kind of cowardice and abandoning his post and washington in particular stood by him in that wrote to him afterwards yeah. and said you know actually you behaved quite you know you were fine you didn't do anything wrong and jefferson really valued that now and they really come together as the war ends. And I think their relationship blossoms in the 1780s in particular. Um, and we know this because the 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 tone and and tenor of their correspondence and the volume of it changes quite dramatically. Now, Washington's a couple of years older, is that right? He's about eleven years older. He's older. So so is it old. a is it a friendship between equals? Is it a mentorship? How would you, what kind of friendship is this? That's a really good question because of course people in this period loved family metaphors, right? Mm. Founding fathers. Yes. Well, that term is coined later, but you know, we, they're referred to as, you know, Washington is the father of his country, etc. cetera. Washington's frequently speaks of the people, his aides like Alexander Hamilton as his family and and Washington, so the, the language of family suffuses this period in all kinds of ways. But what, Jefferson is too old to be a metaphorical son for Washington, and he's not in his military family. Hmm. Um, so I think that they're in a slightly different situation. And the argument I make in the book, or one of the suggestions, not a main argument of the book, but one of the things I suggest is the best way to think of them is as cousins
0: hmm.
1: and what I mean by that is um I don't have cousins actually both of my parents were only children which makes is, is a bit unusual but I, my my kids have cousins cousins are cousins cousin cousinage is an interesting relationship because they're people you see you can feel quite close to. You kind of drift in and out of each other's lives occasionally. Um, I, I think that describes it. So their cousins, uh, I think I think thinking of them as cousins rather than in a paternal uh, uh, son way is more accurate uh, in terms of our modern usage. But it's also, as you'll know, cousin is a usage in the early modern period. For somebody you kind of in your class who you're friendly with, you mm-hmm. know, so, so elite Virginians will call each other cousin, whether they're related, related or not. Uh, and we get this going back to you know if you look to go back to the theater Shakespeare uses it in that way, and I have found that they were actually eleventh cousins. They have, 11th cousins okay. they have a common ancestor. They uh, have a common ancestor in the in the 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 Earl of Westmoreland in the from the 14th century, and he's the guy who um Henry V directs his St Crispin's Day speech addresses his St Crispin's Day speech to in Henry V Westmoreland. so that's their cousin, oh, okay. cousin. and you, so okay. so so they're cousins in the and there's a kind of theater connection which I liked because of the the, the fact they met at the theater in the beginning so i think that their the cousinage is the way to think of them and i think you can think of them as, so they're part of the same family in the broadest sense Hmm. that they're members of this Virginia elite. It's not a father-son relationship. I think that's one reason why it develops in the way it does, because Jefferson, everybody's in awe of Washington in that revolutionary generation. I exaggerate, but you take my point. Uh, Particularly people who served with Washington. Hmm. And he's incredibly devoted to those members of his so-called military family, but they never get beyond in many cases, that relationship because he was their boss, right? Hmm. Jefferson and Washington meet as not quite equals. They're equals in terms of their social class. They've got different skill sets and each recognizes that the other one has skills that he doesn't. Hmm. And I think that's a good basis of their relationship. But to some extent, Jefferson's not in awe of Washington in the way that others are. And I think Washington kind of values that and values his counsel. Washington will ask him for advice Again, in the 1780s, when their relationship really blossoms, about things like the Society of Cincinnati. Hmm. So, when the Society of Cincinnati is created, which is this uh, basically it's a veterans organization for the officers of the Continental Army, former officers of the Continental Army, and Washington's you know who's going to be president of it, of course. Um, Jefferson's very concerned about it because status in the Society of Cincinnati is inherited. And he sees this as the beginning of a military class and an aristocracy. And Washington asks his advice about it, knowing, I argue, how Jefferson's going to answer. Jefferson says, "Look, this is a bad idea, and this mm-hmm. is a bad idea for the following reasons. You need to change the constitution of the of the of the society in the following ways." And Washington agrees with him. Eventually, the society doesn't make those changes, but that's a different story. But that's a good example of. Because Jefferson wasn't coming from a military background, I think Washington asked him for advice on that, um, kind of expecting him to push back, and Jefferson had the confidence to do so. Now, so what is it about
0: Jefferson that Washington admired, and what is it about Washington that Jefferson admired?
1: Jefferson's smart. Washington's not dumb, contrary to mm. some, but but Jefferson's really smart uh and 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 he's well read he's worldly he's traveled in Europe he uh, well not until middle age but he's well traveled he understands diplomacy, he understands politics um and Washington respects those qualities um Jefferson, you know Washington meets all the standards of elite Virginia manhood. You mm. know, he's physically brave. He's got presence. He's charismatic. Um, he's also smart, um, but not in the same way that Jefferson is. And he's a bona fide celebrity, even when Jefferson meets him in 1768 because mm. of his service during the Seven Years' War. But, you know, he's 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 a big deal he's a big deal. And Jefferson is is aware of that. But they have, I suggest, kind of complementary. They're very, very different personalities and very, very different skill sets. But they complement each other quite well. And each recognizes that in the other. They share a, what, what, what one thing they share is a quite intense love of agriculture. Mm. and And, you know, we call them planters. And of course, they're labor supplied mostly by unfree enslaved people, but, but they're both really interested in the science of agriculture and they both take it seriously and read about it a lot. And they correspond about it a lot when they start to, when their relationship starts to fall apart in the 1790s, one of the few subjects they still correspond about is agriculture. In fact, there's a very funny letter. Um, Jefferson's not funny uh, generally <laughs> or not, not, not intentionally that um, very funny letter when the things are tense between them and some, some European um, scientists or, you know, uh, gentlemen scientists has written asking for agricultural advice. Um, And they, they, they have this correspondence about manure, the use of manure uh, (laughs) in in agriculture. And this is like the one thing, um, you know, basically their relationship is at that point is reduced to bullshit.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Um, Now, I mean, in describing their relationship, uh, I can understand why you would call them partners, allies, co-workers, um, what kinds of friend stuff did they do? Did they go bowling together? You know, like did they go like you know, about they hang out at the pub? like what what friendship things? Did did they do above and beyond their their working relationship?
1: Okay, so the the book begins with a tale about them going fishing. All right. So soon it's the spring of 1790. The government of the Washington is president of the United States. Jefferson has just arrived from Europe via Virginia to join his cabinet as secretary of state. The capital of the United States is New York City uh washington as is recovering from a bout of pneumonia that they thought was going to kill him and so he's convalescing jefferson's just arrived it's june i think it's june of 1790 and he's arrived in new york and and um washington writes to him and says look they're telling me i have to go and uh, get some exercise do you want to go fishing with me and the way this story gets told and retold there's a version of it where they go fishing with Alexander Hamilton on Alexander Hamilton's sloop. Okay, um, and so it's not like two the, guys out in a rowboat. It's on a real no no, 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 and they're not, and they're not sitting by the lake. They're, they're, they, 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 they they're going to go out on a kind of sailing vessel and do some offshore fishing. And this has been told and retold, so. Um, it's an interesting story. The image of Jefferson, Hamilton, and Washington going out on on this sloop to go fishing together off the you know the coast of New York and New Jersey evokes that first series of the Sopranos when sort of four <laughs> people go out on the boat and only three come back. Uh, but first of all, I'm pretty sure it didn't happen. Uh, you know, I, I checked the kind of documentary record. There's no strong evidence that Hamilton was there that they used Hamilton's boat that that's a that's a later edition secondly we know washington went fishing because the newspapers reported it mm. however jefferson had a migraine then and actually i think begged <laughs> off going again we have his memorandum books we know where he was most days of his adult life mm. and we've got him like shopping in new york which is a total jefferson move uh rather than <laughs> fishing with washington um so this is seems a weird que- answer to your question but i think what's important about this story is that the invitation was extended i don't think you know so so biographers have read a lot into this saying this is this was a political trip this is them trying to negotiate their boundaries etc i think that's i don't i think that's nonsense i think washington had a near death experience he wanted to go fishing and he invited his friend to go i think his friend because their relationship was solid enough hmm. said, actually, I'm not feeling very well, you know, and declined in the way that you and I have been out many times socially, David, if one of us yes. wasn't feeling very well, we'd just say, Hey, David, I'll get you next time. Right. Sure. Because it, it, or it wouldn't be a referendum on our friendship. Right. Sure, to be sure. so, so I think, I think the invitation is an indication that, yeah, they are, do, you know, they're not just sitting around arguing about politics all the time or talking about politics or, how to deal with the French revolution. They're just doing normal stuff, including this fishing trip that wasn't. So the fact it wasn't isn't as important to me as the fact that the invitation was extended. And this is before Jefferson's relationship with Hamilton kind of deteriorated. So I don't think that factored into it really. Now in the sort
0: of blurb for the book, it mentions that, that there is a, uh, one of the things that you're doing is countering the legend of their enmity uh, uh, that, that, that that, that, that that which you seem as as some kind of myth so so why do people think that they didn't like each other
1: it's not a myth that they didn't like each other <laughs> uh at the end of their relationship um so they do become so why Jefferson serves for just under four years in Washington's cabinet he's Secretary of State and he actually does a pretty good job there he was I the mean, best secretary of State the country' ever had He was. That's right. And and they had a pretty productive relationship uh, during that time. And again, they collaborate a lot and they frequently meet for breakfast. They have breakfast meetings and hammer things out. Um, And during that, but but they become gradually estranged. Estranged is too too strong for it. They begin to drift apart over politics during this period, mm. and they drift apart by, over a couple of things. And we know what caused the partisanship of the early 1790s. It's basically Hamilton's fiscal program and the French Revolution. And Jefferson disagrees with the what will become the Federalist Party, which includes Washington uh, and especially Hamilton, over these matters um, throughout the course of the period. He He resigns from office. Uh, at the on December thirty first, seventeen ninety three, effective at the end of seventeen ninety three, so he's there from uh, like June of seventeen ninety to the end of seventeen ninety three, and when he leaves office, when he leaves and goes into what he claims is going to be a retirement, um, Jefferson, that is, they are their relationship is still friendly, but it's cool. I think that would be the, you know, and then there have been some bruising political encounters near the end of that time. But again, I suggest in the book, they actually collaborated quite productively for most of that period. Then we fast forward to 1796, and Jefferson is still in retirement, and that's really important. He's a civilian at this point. Washington is coming to the end of his second term, and Jefferson writes to Filippo Matzei who's a who's a Italian friend of his who had been his neighbor in Virginia. In fact, I'm if I look out the window, I'm looking out right here looks all out on the land that I'm sitting on land once owned by Jefferson and I can see land once owned by Matt Uh, he writes to Matt who's back in Italy and he writes him a letter. And he says. Really, it's kind of obliquely unflattering things about um, Washington, and he says, you know, you wouldn't believe, you know, dear Phil, you wouldn't believe what's going on here. Um, uh, people who were once Samsons in the field, so that's a reference to Washington's military greatness, have been shorn by the harlot England (laughs) have had their hair shorn by the harlot England. As political insights go, this is a, you know, this isn't little Marco. Mm. This is (laughs) meatball Ron. This is pretty tame stuff. Nonetheless, in that culture, where reputation is everything. So he, the implication is that, that, you know, Washington has been seduced by Britain has and, and, and had his hair cut like Samson and thus lost his power. And it's just terrible. Well, what happens is Maté shares this letter, as frequently happened in the 18th century, mm-hmm. with New Zealanders. He shares it with people in, in Italy. It eventually makes its way to France. It's republished. in. It's translated from English into French and then from French back into English. And it oh, becomes geez. less flattering as it goes. It goes viral, this letter. Right. Okay. and And it appears in the American newspapers in 1797. All right. At that point, Jefferson is the vice president of the United States to John Adams. So now instead of. Guy living in private life in Virginia, dishing a little bit of gossip to his friend, this is now the former vice, the current vice president is attacking the former president, who's still one of the most popular men in the country. And this is widely published in the newspapers. Washington is very, very, very concerned about his reputation and mm. does a lot throughout his life to cultivate his le- reputation. He's got a temper and he's thin skinned and he takes this very badly. And they basically cut off communication at that point. Mm. Jefferson kind of makes one, one final effort and corresponds to them about peas, you know, raising peas or something like that. And Washington doesn't respond. So, they are estranged as a result of that. Martha Washington really takes against this mm. and they never reconcile because Washington died in December of 1799. I think that with time tempers would have cooled and they might have reconciled In the same way we know that Jefferson and Adams fell out for a decade, mm. but then late in life became sort of, uh, you know, BFFs again and had this wonderful late in life correspondence. I'm not saying that would have happened, but I think with a little more time, maybe it would have improved. Jefferson always regretted this, always regretted the letter and also regretted that, you know, that he never patched things up. The other thing I suggest in the book is. Once he becomes president he realizes, you know, this is a hard job and Washington <laughs> actually did a pretty good job of it. And, and he really tries to kind of get right with Washington posthumously. Mm. And I don't think this is just cynical politics. I think he actually think, I think, and this is a perhaps a lesson for the current moment. He said, you know, all that stuff we got so upset about a decade ago wasn't as important as it seemed at the time. You know, we actually mm. agree on more than we disagree about. And and he he as he gets older, he really has that kind of, uh, that kind of um revelation comes to him and so uh, usually uh, jefferson's attempts to sort of show and he does this through carefully editing his, his his own letters and documentary record to show that he and washington agreed um more than people know uh, that scene is quite cynical i actually think it's quite sincere mm. uh, i think i th- i think he he really did come to believe that Hamilton's the bet noir in all this. He says, you know, Hamilton led Washington astray. He says, Jefferson says some unflattering things about Washington at the end because he can't accept that Washington doesn't agree with him on these fundamental questions about the French Revolution and Hamiltonian political economy. So he starts to say things like, well, you know, he's a little bit, he's lost a step. He's a little feeble. Mm. He's, you know, Hamilton's led him astray. He says some unflattering things and and then comes to regret them. But I think he says those things in the heat of the moment. And then as time passes, he says, well, you know, it wasn't really like that. Um, It's it's interesting. Jefferson, of course, lives till 1826. He outlives Washington by 27 years or about 26 years uh, 26 and a half years. Um, and he, he does kind of what it's not like he wakes up at night thinking, Oh God, I didn't make things right when Washington but I think it is a regret of his for the rest of his life. And he tries to show that they actually agreed on the fundamentals uh, on the important things. Now now you mentioned
0: Martha Washington earlier and, and her not being a big fan of Jefferson. Was that just at the, the end of, of, of George's life when they had the falling out or, or did she dislike him, uh, going back as obviously friendships, you know, friendships are important, but also like what one's spouse thinks about one's friends is also uh, important.
1: So Richard Nixon is said to have praised Barbara Bush. I don't know whether this story is apocryphal <laughs> or not, but I've heard it. And he praised her because he said, I really like her. She knows how to hate. And oh, <laughs> and, and I think about that sometimes when I think about Martha Washington, because Martha could hold a grudge, too, and Martha was very, very keen to protect and preserve George Washington's memory and image, and uh, both his image during his lifetime and his memory after he died, although she only outlived him by a couple of years. And uh, she told a story, and this gets widely retold, and it's in the book as well, um, about the time that Jefferson came to visit her. So Jefferson, Washington dies in December of 1799. In January of 1801, so 13 months later, Jefferson comes to Mount Vernon to pay his respects to the widow, Washington, and to Washington's, at Washington's grave. Martha Washington says to people subsequently, and these are Federalist opponents of Jefferson's, well, the worst day of my life was the day that George died. The second worst day of my life was the day that Jefferson visited. Jesus Christ, that's... it's a great line. No, yes, but that's a mean thing. To, you know. <laughs> it is a mean thing to say. Now, I don't know whether that's apocryphal or not. It, it, I mean, it it, it it rings true, but we get this again from Jefferson's Federalist opponents who are the ones who retell the story. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to th- remember, OK, so what's going on in January of 1801? We've still got the election of 1800 is still unsettled. The House of Representatives is going to resolve that in February of 1801. So one could argue that Jefferson, who did not pay his respects to Martha Washington uh, or to the memory of George Washington in the year after Washington's death, suddenly suddenly rocks up at Mount Vernon looking for a bit of uh, kind of fairy mm. dust to help his case with the outgoing Federalist dominated House of Representatives, which is going to pick the president. Uh, and that this might be seen as a cynical political move. And I think that's how Martha Washington saw it, which may well be why she presented it as she did, if those accounts of other uh, yeah. people are, are accurate. So it's a great story. I think if you unpack it, it kind of, you can see where she's coming yeah. from, thinking, you know, who's this guy? Cause, cause uh, and, Cello, remember, you
0: know, I mean, Macho and Mount Vernon aren't that far apart.
1: Yeah, they're not that close together. Together,
0: to, to be sure,
1: but right. you're yeah. but 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 yes, Jefferson could have made that trip earlier if, if that's yeah. if that's where you're going. Yeah, he could have. And she's thinking. And remember, the previous encounter has been over this letter. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, so he's he you know this guy who's been critical of of um, of Washington at least in the public prints indirectly, but still happened, mm-hmm. and then. Turns up then, uh, turns up subsequently, seemingly looking for a kind of posthumous pat on the back yeah. to help his presidential uh, candidacy. You can see where she's coming from. Having said that, Jefferson's account of the encounter, it, he basically says had a very nice visit with Mrs. Washington. Um, she, He writes to his daughter, you know, she was asking for you and sends her regards. You know, his his account is pretty neutral. Um we don't, you know, the account we have from critics is, is says, you know, is is from is being retold by others. So maybe mm. it didn't quite unfold that way, but there doesn't seem to have been much love lost between Martha Washington and, and Thomas Jefferson.
0: Now, was she at the theater in seventeen sixty eight? Not to my knowledge, no. Oh, okay, no. They, um,
1: they
0: weren't. They weren't double dating.
1: They were not they were not double dating. They were not that's, double that's dating. That's
0: too bad. Okay. I can imagine a you know sitcom Bridgerton kind of thing yeah. going on. <laughs> oh, <that's...
1: God. laughs> so I spoke about this the other day, David. I I was at Colonial Williamsburg doing some um do, doing I, I had a couple of speaking engagements there. I wasn't talking about the book, I was talking about something else. But Colonial Williamsburg, as you know, is a living history museum. Yes, you it's know, the been, focusing been, on this been beauty. there many times yeah and and i made a passing reference to them going to the theater together and somebody in the audience shouted out which one because of course they have more than one theater Mm -hmm. and these people know more about this stuff than anybody on earth
0: Mm.
1: (laughs) and i had to go back and check i didn't i i couldn't remember at the time it's the Mm. it's the old theater and I, i should have gone to have a look at it but uh yeah okay well that's very cool all right um what you know thinking about
0: what their relationship their friendship their 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 partnership meant what what does it mean for the revolution more broadly what were they able to accomplish together
1: so that's that's a good question um i mean what they each accomplish rather than accomplish together. I mean Jeff, these are two of the most important leaders of the revolution. I know it's not fashionable you know to focus on leaders, but leaders do matter. Um, you know Jefferson, of course, articulates the mission statement for the country in the Declaration of Independence. He's not why he's one of several who does that, but he's the primary author. Um, and that's incredibly important. And Washington, of course, leads the war effort that makes that reality or makes sure. that possible. Uh, uh, so on a fundamental level, there's that. But mm. they do that in isolation from each other. They're not doing that together. They're just doing that because they each have different skill sets. I think their bigger kind of effort together, they do a couple of things. They collaborate um, they write a lot to each other about the Constitution, which is interesting, because mm. Washington is, is, is you know, a quiet man at the Constitutional Convention and Jefferson isn't there. But they, their constitutional thinking is in in closer sync than one would imagine. But their real effort together, their real contribution to the country when it comes to working together, to emphasize that, comes during the Washington administration. And in that sense, I think they had a much more productive and harmonious relationship than we think, because we tend to read back that, you know, the splits in the cabinet and the, the dispute, the subsequent dispute over politics, we read that back. And again, if you read the correspondence in order, even in response to the French revolution uh, and the neutrality proclamation of 1793, which Jefferson writes Mm. um, once the cabinet um, agrees on it, they're in broad agreement and they work pretty productively in, you know, the, the first Washington administration is rightly seen as a success and really important as far as the kind of precedence it sets. And Jefferson plays a key role in that. Very cool. Right. So, listeners, you want to learn more, you can get the book available
0: uh, in a couple of weeks. And, and I'll put a link to the live stream uh, at, at Machello in the show notes and links where you can get the book from, from Harvard University Press and, and all press, all uh your local real realtors of uh, book vendors, <laughs> yes.
1: Thank you, David. Thanks for giving me a chance to. to no, to this was talk exciting. Well,
0: we've been you know talking about this book and uh, you know before and after our shows for. You know, five or six years now, so it's always it's, good it's to see done. Thank God. Thank <laughs> and, and so
1: I want I want to just by way of concluding, I want to pay a tribute to Harvard University Press because they did a beautiful job producing it, and my editor there, Kathleen McDermott, has great been great to work with. So to the people in the publicity and marketing team, so, so it's been a very very good experience. And if you won't have to wait as long, I'm actually writing a book now while I'm here in Charlottesville with Peter Onif. It, it was it was in the press recently, so I can say this uh, with Peter Oniff. Uh It's going to be a short book about why Jefferson matters for twenty twenty six. That's not the title, but that's the theme. Um, and and we're making good progress on that, so you won't have to wait five or six years for this one. Because uh, what the world needs is two old white guys talking about <laughs> Thomas Jefferson. Oh, that's well, what we need. So so
0: there you we got go. two old white guys running for president. You might as well have. Yeah, that's you know, right. It's. <laughs> Why not? Sure. Um, and the revolution. Yeah, well, I guess you do have a deadline for that one, given the two uh, fiftieth coming up. So we do,
1: and we're in fact right after I get off this call with you, David. I have a call <laughs> with Peter. We, All right. We, we meet and co-authoring. Is have you co-authored before? I,
0: I've co-authored a couple of articles, but but a book that that's a whole nother kind of, you know level of, of commitment. I'm not sure I'm, I'm ready for it yet.
1: It's very interesting. And and again, I want this one to be accessible. Uh, but, uh, so last week, Peter and I meet at least once a week to talk about this. Um, and he said, we have to talk about contractions. <laughs> and I think we're having stylistic differences.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> I think you should alternate chapters. One where, where it's, <laughs> one with the
1: Oxford come on, one without the Oxford
0: on, just to mess with your copy editors. Um, Good. Time for the last drop, Frank. What you got?
1: I want to uh, change the tone a little bit and and pay tribute to our colleague, Harry Dickinson, who died recently. Uh, Professor Dickinson was a very, very um, uh, esteemed uh, historian of 18th century Britain. Um, He was a a colleague. He was in Edinburgh. I think he came in 1966 and spent his entire career there. Uh, his body of work is incredibly important and impressive but beyond all that he was a very very good colleague to me when I arrived back in 1997 um and and uh, a good friend who kind of supported and promoted my work and encouraged me and um yeah I'm just very sad that he's 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 dead he is mm. he's passed away so I, no. raise a glass to Harry Dickinson. Yeah, we don't have sure. that many colleagues like that anymore who spend their no. entire careers in Edinburgh. Um no.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he retired before I came, but yeah, I remember seeing him. He used to come and you would see him in the, in the faculty lounge and other kinds of places, just uh, being a presence occasionally and, and being involved in things. So it's a,
1: yeah. I mean, one, one thing he deserves particular um, credit for is Harry went to China long before going to China was cool. Mm-hmm. Harry went to China when uh, no Western academics who weren't sinologists were going mm-hmm. to China. can't remember how he actually started going, but he went in the kind of late 70s, early 80s and went pretty consistently after that. And I once, 2010, I went on a trip to China with Harry and it was extraordinary to see the affection and, and respect that the community of British historians in China, most of whom could trace their kind of academic lineage to Harry, hmm. had for him. Um, they joked with him, they made fun of him in ways that we would never have dared in Edinburgh, yeah. <laughs> but also genuine kind of love, affection, and respect. And that was a product of, you know, in 2010, when I went there with him, of course, every Western university was seeking links in China at that point. But, 13, 14 years ago, um, they've backed off a little bit since. But, uh, but, you know, Harry was there first and and his, his support for the study of British history in China is one of the really, apart from all his other achievements, one of the really important legacies of his career. Oh, well, yes, by all means, we should uh, remember him fondly. I was on the Great Wall of China with Harry <laughs> and uh, we were, I don't know, posing for a picture. And this little kid edges into the picture, edges into the photo as we're standing there, and his parents are taking pictures of us with their son. And Harry said, "Oh, that happens all the time because frequently what you get is people coming from the provinces who visit these places like we were, mm-hmm. who haven't seen Westerners before, and so they take pictures with you." He said, "He said, you know, it's nice to think that, like, that's going to be on somebody's mantle in Sichuan. <laughs> <laughs> These two random guys and their son, <laughs> whatever. So, yeah, had some good experiences with Harry in China. Good memories. Yeah. What about you, David? What do you uh, have? Well,
0: I just wanted to point out um, many listeners may have paid attention to the hearings at the um, Supreme Court yesterday over the the Trump Fourteenth Amendment uh, issue. Uh, but I just want to call attention to to uh, a couple of, of briefs filed with the court on, on this case. Uh, that were written by historians I've tried to provide some historical context um, uh, to uh, this this case, which is obviously you know a case that's very much rooted in a very particular moment in time when the Fourteenth Amendment was crafted and the intentions of the people who were crafting it about what they thought that third section was supposed to mean. And it, it's really impressive to see both the the quality of the brief itself, but also the the um, some of the scholars who, who lent their time and name to, uh, to, to, you know, give some actual expertise on this question. Um, and it seems as if the media has actually given some attention to these briefs, uh, whether the court does or not, we'll find out when they issue a decision. But, uh, lots of, of friends of the show made a, made, had signed their name to it, including, uh, Karen Cox is on here. Adam Dombey's on here. James McPherson, uh, Nell Painter, um. Uh, Paul S. Scott, other important people, Scott Nelson. Um, So it's good to see historians playing an active role in those kinds of very pertinent political questions.
1: What do you think is going to happen on that one? I mean, we have done an episode on this. Uh,
0: Oh, so I listened to the uh, oral arguments yesterday and you know, the, the way the media is covering is suggesting they think that Trump's going to win the case. Um, based on the oral argument, I'm not quite sure how much faith you can place on what happens in oral argument, because sometimes people will say one thing in oral argument and vote some other way entirely. And so I think it's you know sometimes like reading tea leaves to, to make sense of what happens there about how justices are going to vote. Um, but some historians' names got dropped in the oral argument uh, by the justices. Clarence uh, Thomas mentioned Eric Foner and James McPherson. But then he also mentioned Shelby Foote, so you know, you win two, you lose one. Um, yeah, do what you can. I don't know. Um, well, but-
1: I mean, the, the 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 smart money, for what that's worth, and you know, who knows? Seems to be suggesting that that you know this grand bargain, allegedly that Trump's going to win this case and be allowed to stay on the ballot, but probably lose on the immunity case when that comes. And a lot of people seem to be suggesting that the and they shouldn't be linked, of course. There should be no. s- totally separate decisions. But that the court, if there's some concern about its reputation, might go that way and sort of split the split the decision.
0: That's a political solution to a, but that shouldn't be a anyway. Um, You know, who knows? My, my reading the the Fourteenth Amendment and the way these historians interpret the Fourteenth Amendment is it disqualifies people like Trump. Um, Granted, there aren't that many people like Trump, but, um, you know, it's exactly the kind of situation that that 14, the third uh, section of the 14th Amendment was talking about. But, you know, I'm not one of the nine guys who gets to decide that question. So, alas. Well, we'll hear soon. Yes, we will. All right. And we will find out and we'll talk more about it on the show then. But uh, until next time, Frank, cheers and congratulations on the book. I think it's going to. Thank
1: you, David. Thanks very much. It's best seller list.
0: Yeah, thank you. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh and Frank is Professor of American History and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.